Welcome back to the 430 Movie. We got our expert programmers here to curate Fantasy Theme Week's of classic film from 1998 film directed by Steven Soderbergh called Out of Sight yes Soderbergh directs it with such a sort of confident self-assured style Lex Luthor in Superman what is it about Gene Hackman that uh... his performance it's off the charts but still in reality fiendishly gifted 1981 Sam Raimi Opus The Evil Dead oh yes fine choice Sam Raimi invented entirely new ways to get shots that should not have been possible with the amount of money that he did not have charade oh directed by Stanley Donnan it's a textbook screenplay it's just effortless and there's not a wrong note in this movie can't say enough great things about it we'll be back next Friday with an all new episode of the 430 movie wherever you listen to podcasts join us now for the 430 Movie. The 430 Movie Podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And if you're a fan of this podcast, you already know the 50-year mission is the definitive oral history of Star Trek. And Secrets of the Force will tell you everything you want to know about the history of Star Wars. But what you probably don't know is Ed Gross and I have a new book coming out this July. They shouldn't have killed his dog. The complete uncensored ass-kicking oral history of John Wick, Gun Fu, and the new age of action. Coming from St. Martin's in hardcover, digital, and audio. You can order it today. Sundays on Electric Now. Tune in to the official Leverage Redemption After Show, a very distinctive podcast with me, Yell Teagle, and my co-host, Felicia Michelle. Each week, we'll be breaking down another episode of Leverage Redemption. Plus, we've got exclusive interviews with the stars, as well as some games, and we'll even be showing off some amazing fan art. So after you watch Leverage Redemption on IMDb TV, you'll definitely want to join us here to catch all the Easter eggs and behind-the-scenes fun. The official Leverage Redemption After Show, a very distinctive podcast. Sundays on Electric Now. If you like listening to this podcast, you'll love watching us on Electric Now, the free video streaming app featuring video versions of all your favorite Electric Surge podcasts, along with full seasons of The Librarians, Leverage, the exclusive Leverage Redemption After Show, as well as Flash Gordon serials, hysterical comedy specials, and much more. Download it today from your favorite app store or watch us on Roku, Stir, DistroTV, Zumo, Sling, or Plex. Welcome to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we explore interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. I am your co-host, Josh Miller, and with me, as always, is Mr. Steven Scarlatta. How are you doing today, Josh? I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? Beautiful. Uh, I think we're particularly excited for um, this episode or episodes. We'll see how this shakes out as we are returning to our annual tradition of highlighting unmade Michael Myers movies in time for October. And this feels like an extra special one of these episodes because our guest is joining us for the first time, but for our longtime listeners, in some ways, he's always been a part of the show because I feel like we've been bringing up his many, many books back to our first year. Um, You may have heard us talking about his book, Slash of the Titans, on our episode about 
uh, Freddy versus Jason versus Ash. We've talked about taking shape one and two on many of these Michael Myers Halloween related episodes. We just most recently talked about his book Phantasm Exhumed on our Unmade Phantasm episodes. So welcome author Dustin McNeil. I don't know if I can live up to that introduction. Gosh, that was terrific. Great to be here. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining us and for writing all these books that have provided so much research for Steve over the years. Um, but before we even get into anything, Michael Myers, let's just talk a little bit about you and your origin story and what led to you've kind of got this little niche uh, of books going at this point. Well, uh, it started a few years, maybe 2009 or 2010. My first book was Phantasm Exhumed on the making of the Phantasm movie series. And that wasn't necessarily me wanting to get into publishing. That was me wanting to do something special with the Phantasm series. I was very close with Angus Scrim and a lot of the cast, and I wanted to do something in tribute to their work. But in doing that, I learned a lot of skills uh, that were unique to publishing a book that I didn't have anything else to do with afterwards. And so I thought, let me publish a second book. And uh, I just kind of kept that going. And I've stayed within the uh, the horror genre publication, you know, uh, world, and it's it's gone fairly well. I'm now on my about to release my seventh book uh, next month, and um, I'm I'm loving it. Fortunately, other people love horror movies as much as I do at the at the level that I do, because you know, as you know, if you've read my books, like Taking Shape Two, it's it's 600 pages, so it's <laughs> yeah. it's a little detailed. That's kind of how I like my my retrospectives. How did you know, uh, just going back, you know, that you're friends with Angus and a bunch of the Phantasm people. How did that even come about? So 2006, 2007, I launched, you know, that's a different time now. I launched a fan website back before, you know, you would just do that on Facebook. I had a fan <laughs> website and uh, Angus Scrim and Michael Baldwin and Reggie Bannister, they were all very active online and they looked at the fan sites and I developed a really great friendship with Angus and who was also a writer. You know, Angus wrote the liner notes for albums back when records had liner notes. He won a Grammy for it, in fact, and he was an amazing writer and he helped mentor me along in the writing and publication of Phantasm Exhumed. And so, you know, when you've got that kind of encouragement, uh, you can do anything. It's still kind of propelling me today. I mean, that's pretty amazing as just a fan doing a fan site and then having them reach out to you. Uh, what was, uh, what did you host the site on not to get on a tangent here? Yahoo. Okay. Uh, which is no longer a thing. Mm -hmm. They've been, they've sold off their web hosting business several times, but like this was Yahoo when you could still, I could have gone the GeoCities route. I was going to say, cause I, I had a GeoCities yeah. website back in like 1997. <laughs> right. And so this was 2007 was still when you could have been a part of like a web ring. Yeah. You, oh, web page. ring. I, and the, my website had a MySpace page for it back when MySpace was still MySpace. Oh God. Terrible, <laughs> but it all paid off. That's the important thing. Yeah, yeah. I was able. I was glad I got out of that because Facebook and social media kind of killed the fan site in a way. You know, that was a in like the fan forum. I mean, those were really special online communities that kind of dissolved once social media took off. Oh yeah, in the early aughts, like that was kind of my ritual. Waking up every day is reading, you know, Dark Horizons and all those different genre film websites. Yeah, Dark Horizons the, was the best. 
I assume it's probably still around. I just now, now I kind of wait for people to like link articles they like on mm-hmm. Twitter. I've become part of the boring social media aggregate system. Yeah. I'm ashamed of myself. <laughs> um, but looping things now back into uh, the Taking Shape books, uh, you know, it, we've talked about so many Halloween movies already on this podcast. And as you holding up Taking Shape 2 moments ago illustrated, there's so much more. Um, but just tell us a little bit about your own level of fandom, you know, why you even wanted to write a book about just the making of the movies that did get made. Taking yeah. Shape, by the way, I love that title. Taking Shape 1, right, uh, is the making of the movies that did get made. You know, just since I was a kid, I've been such a fan of Halloween and Michael Myers. You know, I started off on the Universal Monsters as a young kid, but I graduated about, I think, nine or ten into Halloween and the Slashers, and they were terrifying to me. And my first big screen Halloween was H2O, which was an event movie. I mean, people mock it as like a scream knockoff now, but at the time, H2O was, that was big shit. Like it was cool. And, uh, you know, I've loved it ever since. I've loved all the different versions of Halloween. And I, I knew I couldn't follow up Phantasm Exhumed with Halloween because that was too top shelf. You don't go from Phantasm to Halloween. I needed <laughs> to get a few more books out of my system. And I did. And finally, after Taking Shape was my fifth book, after four books, I finally felt like I had the testicular fortitude to tackle Halloween. And so... That's what I did. I, I wrote the book that I wanted to read about it. And um, I roped in a wonderful co-writer named Travis Mullins, who wrote for Dread Central and has done some other things in the genre. And uh, I got him to do it with me. And it's, I'm, I'm very proud of Taking Shape, both of them, really. Was that, did you get a co-authors just to kind of ease the workload? Was that the idea? No, I didn't even want a co-author because I'm so controlling. Um, <laughs> Travis had managed to get an interview with Robert Harders, who was one of the original screenwriters for Halloween 5, um, before he dropped off the project. But I'm like, I want to interview that guy. And Robert Harders wouldn't give me an interview. He says, I just gave an interview to this guy, Travis Mullins. Um, go read the interview I gave him. And so I, I offered to license that interview from Travis. I said, let me just give you some money and you let me have the interview. And in talking to Travis, I realized he really, really knew his stuff about Halloween and was also a very strong writer. And so um, it's been a very fruitful partnership. You know, two books later, we're like I said, our third book, uh, we haven't announced it, but it's, it's going to hit next month. And it's been terrific. Oh, that's exciting. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you've talked to so many people. Is it hard? I mean, I guess you just noted the hard thing with that guy, but to just get all the people involved with, especially the unmade projects, like what, what is your process for approaching them? I'm interested in this since, you know, we're always doing the same thing, obviously. Yeah. So, you know, finding some people, you know, sometimes it's easy. You just go find their agent on like IMDB Pro or something. And that's so simple. And sometimes they're harder to find. Sometimes you have to get on Facebook and do a little social media stalking and reach out. And uh, one of the, um, God, one of the best interviews from Taking Shape 2, um, Shim Bitterman. Shim Bitterman was a screenwriter on Halloween 5 and did the original version of Halloween 4, has never been interviewed before, has never given an interview on the subject. And I had reached out multiple times uh, and 
Travis Mullins, my co-writer, was like, that's not good enough. This guy's never talked about <laughs> these two movies. He's never been on a home on a DVD at a reunion, at a screening. He's never talked about it. And we wanted to talk about it. Travis started reaching out to his friends and colleagues and uh, four or five mutual friends or, you know, stalking episodes later, the guy gave in and relented. <laughs> the most revealing interview to Travis. It was fantastic. He not only opened up, but he shared several of his screenplays that have just stuff that has never seen the light of day. And that's, that was our goal with both taking shapes. You know, we challenged ourselves to say Halloween fans are among the most dedicated and knowledgeable horror fan bases out there. What can we possibly dig up that they don't know about? Hmm. And Shim Bitterman was perfect because, you know, his Halloween four revelations were terrific, but the Halloween five stuff, I mean, his Halloween five was wildly different. So that's, you know, well, we'll we just, build our way up to that. I guess. Yeah. You know, and sometimes they really tell you to fuck off when you start reaching out to friends and family, but with, with Travis, with that guy, it worked. So a little mm. stalking, a little professional <laughs> reaching out. You, you, you kidnapped his child coming home from school. That's basically mm. what it sounded. Yeah, just about. Uh, well, why don't we get things going properly, Steve? I'm sure you have plenty of things to tell us, easing ourselves into this long, long process. Yeah, I mean, I don't know where to begin, to be honest. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I guess really quick. I mean, Halloween, you know, is a huge success and immediately, you know, they're going to in 1981 they're going to do a Halloween two, And so between Halloween and Halloween two, I mean, have you ever come across anything besides like that, that one infamous one where it's like um, Laurie was going to be locked up in some high rise. Did you ever come across anything about that by any chance? No, that's, that's one idea that I think has that John Carpenter played pretty close to his chest. I mean, we don't even know how much, um, how much he wrote on it. But that idea is so fascinating that it's been repeated so much that, you know, we, we, we just have a, a shred of information and so much interest and intrigue from it. Uh, no, I, we, that's one thing we tried for, but couldn't get. We reached out to John Carpenter knowing it was not going to be yeah. a good <laughs> idea. Saying, hey, we'd, we'd love to talk to you about the sequels. And that's the one thing he never wants to talk about ever. So, Well, no, wait, is there more? Is there more info beyond just Laurie in a high rise or is that the extent to which? Well, was it a treatment? Was it a full screenplay? Was it notes on a restaurant napkin? We don't know how far yeah. he mm -hmm. put it together, right? And with just... Deborah Hill no longer with us, um, unless someone happens to ask him at a random interview, you know, he's just not opening up about it. And who knows how much he remembers anymore, you know? Sure. Yeah. 40 yeah. years ago to something he probably didn't write, so... The real battle, the real first, if we're talking the early history of Halloween, the real first alternate lost sequel battle happened on uh, Halloween 4, because that's where the falling out happened. Um, Universal, you know, Halloween 3 came out, and although we now know it's a masterpiece, no one did back then. Yeah. Universal Studios, uh, they were like, we're done. They, they had the option to continue uh, distributing Halloween movies. They didn't care. They put the rights to the series on the auction block and no major studio made a bid for it because everyone just assumed you've killed your own franchise. 
no one wanted a piece of it. But John Carpenter had a writer, Dennis Etchison, that he had backed to do Halloween 4. And Mustafa Akkad, uh, as a lot of people know, strongly opposed that version of things. And so automatically Halloween 4, I think we've got two, three alternate Halloween 4s in Taking Shape 2 that were completely different from the one that hit theaters. So that's, if we're, you know, in terms of the earliest lost sequels, Halloween 4 is where we start. Yeah, and we did, last year we did uh, the Etchison version or one of them, the one that I like to say ends with Kaiju, Michael Myers, where he becomes all gigantic at the end. <laughs> uh, wait, so, but not, not to sidetrack. So there never was a different Halloween 3. Is that my the understanding I'm getting? That was always the season of the witch was always the plan and they moved forward with that. Right. That's, and that's, you know, we, we got uh, Tommy Lee Wallace for taking shape one. And we really dug at that to make sure that the plan had always been the story that we got. And the interesting thing is that it's not really an alternate sequel, but one thing we managed to get for the first taking shape, if you're thinking about reading the book, we managed to get our hands on some of the earliest script drafts of that before John Carpenter rewrote it before Tommy Lee Wallace rewrote it. It was just a screenplay by Nigel Neal that was even crazier than what we got. (laughs) Because you talk about Kaiju Michael, the original Halloween 3 ended with Kaiju Connell Cochran. He grew enormous in size, like massive. I mean, at the end of the movie. uh, Something was in the air back then, I guess. There's like, no one needs to become 20 feet tall, obviously. Right. And now I want to see a Kaiju Connell Cochran versus a Kaiju (laughs) Michael Myers. I know, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess I'll go back really quick. It's just like, yeah, 1978 Halloween comes out off a budget of 300. It makes 47 million. It's huge. And then some imitator, you know, Friday 13th comes out like two years later, makes almost 40 million. And then and then when Halloween 2 comes out, it comes out the same year as Friday 13th Part 2. And, they, you know, and Halloween 2 just make makes just a few million more than that but um it's in competition with friday the 13th and so it's like john carpenter didn't want to do halloween 2 and it was like i'm gonna kill michael myers in part two so we can do this halloween 3 that's gonna be like this tales from the crypt movie type thing each year a different movie a different story and by him killing michael myers and putting out that movie and them not at all advertising that movie for what it was it just fails you know it's like it makes 14 million and you know people i think i brought up the last time it's like when i saw the halloween 3 commercial it was like the witch mask and eyes appear behind it it was a it's a freaky trailer a commercial and i was like is that michael myers new mask because <laughs> we knew I, we knew nothing about it. i heard like rumors from people oh, michael myers is in it you know it's halloween 3 but i think it was the advertising really messed that movie up like no one knew what to expect and then you know and friday 13 part 3 and 3d came out the summer before august 1982 like two months before halloween 3 comes out and friday 13 part 3d made like 36 million dollars it was fun had fucking yo-yos in it and all kinds of shit coming at you it was like a blast and halloween 3 comes out and people are like what is this movie and it just you know now we can now we love it yeah but at the time it was like what is this and then you're right and then and then it's not until like 1986 is where they begin Halloween 4. And, and up until Halloween 4, 
Friday the 13th, the final chapter comes out, makes like 30 million. Nightmare on Elm Street comes out, it's making 25 million. And so by the time Halloween, there start building on Halloween 4, there's already been five Friday the 13th movies. It's crazy. And so now they're like, they have to catch up to this crazy uh, slasher boom that's happening. It is crazy. I mean, that was something I didn't even really appreciate until like probably once the internet movie database existed and kind of like really looking at the dates things came out stuff that i didn't really pay attention to movies that i was watching 10 years later on vhs yeah and the fact that you know, i always say police academy and friday the 13th are kind of like the two <laughs> franchises of the 80s because they made one almost every single year throughout the decade before crapping out so just the the evolution of all the trends and in the 80s is represented in those two franchises but yeah just that halloween i guess because of part three they really snoozed on it came back almost too late i mean they're still they're still doing okay i don't think we need to feel bad for the halloween franchise but steven to speak to something steven just mentioned about you know everyone knows halloween three was poorly advertised by universal but one of my favorite anecdotes about how badly they advertised the film was one of the promotions was that if you took the studio tour in Hollywood in 1982, uh, when the movie came out, 82 or 83, one of those two years, if you took the studio tour, they would give you a coloring page of the silver shamrock masks if you were a kid. And if you turned in the coloring page, you could get tickets to the movie. Why are kids, (laughs) why are you trying to give tickets to children for Halloween three if they give you coloring pages, like you don't, you're not even. Sounds like a classic Cochrane trap to me. I think <laughs> right? these kids were all going mean, to die. Like that, that told me that they had no clue what they were to do with the movie, that they were like, I don't know, give some kids some coloring pages. <laughs> Dude, that's insane. But um, I, I, I like what your book, you touched one thing in your book. I think it was, I don't know if it was the first or second book is like the Kenny Medina draft where, Yes, it was done by a rock star, dude. I love and you. You interviewed him, which I thought was so freaking awesome. Um, a guy from a band called Perfect Stranger, who I'd never heard of. Right. But that that idea was insane. Yes. OK, so I've never I haven't revealed this uh, anywhere. And I hope tr- my co-writer won't mind me telling it here. That script we were we were writing Taking Shape 2. And Taking Shape 2 began as an appendix in Taking Shape 1. It wasn't supposed to be its own book, but when the appendix got to be bigger than the main part of the book, (laughs) we had to split it off. So we're writing this Taking Shape 2, and it's intense. There's a lot to cover. And Travis, my co-writer, reaches out to me uh, one night and goes, dude, there's a lost script on eBay right now, and no one's ever heard of it. And I don't think anyone's noticing it on eBay because they titled it weird. It was the Kenny Medina draft. Wow. Oh, shit. Nice. We, we, we snapped. We, so we, we had to get it. And then when Travis is like, can we find these writers? I've never heard of these guys. Travis managed to snag the only surviving writer from the script and interview him. And it's the most wild story that has fallen through the cracks because it's the only Halloween four that anyone has ever even hinted at that would have brought back Laurie Strode. It was the Halloween four written before Laurie, before Jamie Lee Curtis had said no. And so for that reason alone, I mean, it just fell into our laps. Basically, we, we were, weren't even looking for that. We didn't even know to be looking for that one. So that's a lesson. Always, always <laughs> check eBay, I guess. 
Uh, and wait, yeah. and so this was written by a guy who was in a rock. He was a rock star. Is that am I following this thread correctly? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like and what was uh uh, what was the premise of that one, other than Lori was back? So Lori is now living in. It's uh, ten years later, and Lori is living in downtown Chicago as the editor of a fashion magazine, and she's very successful and has a husband and a young daughter who may as well be Jamie Lloyd, but she's not titled. She's not named Jamie Lloyd. It's a different name. And her, she's getting therapist because she has amnesia. She can remember nothing about the earlier two Halloween movies. She, it's all blocked in her mind. Who's her therapist? Dr. Loomis. <laughs> and uh, the, the weirdest part to me about that script was that we flash back to the ending of Halloween 2 and they're airlifting Michael out of Haddonfield Memorial. They strap him onto the stretcher and the helicopter is going to take him to a burn unit somewhere. You know the image I'm, I'm describing where the helicopter's flying along and the stretcher's down here on the line, right? Yeah, I mean, kinda, yeah. I always think of that's like some Vietnam movie style mm-hmm. footage where so we're seeing the jungle beneath the guy. They accidentally drop his stretcher into a lake. <laughs> so burnt Crispy Michael, who was strapped to his medical stretcher, drops into the lake and is never heard from again. They never find the body. And so cut to a f- 10 years later and Laurie is trying to live a normal life, unblocking all these memories. And of course, who comes back? Oh, but he doesn't just come back. It's uh, the rock star. Uh, Steven, I think you might have mentioned the rock star. Michael doesn't just come back and steal like a mechanic's overalls, he breaks into a rock star's home, like an MTV glam hair rocker, steals his like leather clothes and steals his sports car and is like mowing people down in line for a movie with a sports (laughs) car. I mean, it is wild. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) It's so cool. Yeah, it's so mid 80s. You know, MTV, the MTV, Michael Myers. Uh, yeah, I, I love that story when I read it. It's pretty, you know, I, yeah, I mean, I guess they made the right choice to do the, the way they did it. But I, I really, I mean, they probably couldn't get her back. But no. uh, I, I really enjoyed hearing about that version of the movie. Yeah, because Michael Myers walking around with leather pants and a leather jacket, you know, <laughs> mowing people down in a car. And, you know, it's such an MTV uh, 80s movie. And one thing Travis and I really try and do with every Lost sequel we covered, we had to make sure this is real, right? This isn't some fanfic, unsolicited spec script. And and no, the people that we interviewed, most of them, you know, were paid. Their scripts were bought. They were developed officially. And so was that Halloween 4. And we're just like, how, how, is, this, how is this an official Halloween script that no one has ever mentioned? It, it's, you know what? It just, you just reminded me about part two. And something like he gets shot in both of his eyes. And like, so no one ever does like a rug at Howard blind fury with fucking Michael Myers is back. Like fucking mm. people. Like I'm shocked that, ne- I mean, I guess you can't cause he can't drive, but um, you know, it's like everyone ignores like he's burned, but he still has his eyes. He's right. all right there. You know, and yeah, I think that's hilarious. He's using the force. Yeah. His eyes are bulletproof. Read. Pretty much. But uh, yeah, that 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 Halloween four, I did enjoy. Um, and um, yeah. And then, I mean, I guess Halloween four, I guess they they did the right choice with that. It was like a big hit. And um, that co- what's crazy, too, is the same year Halloween four came out. A new blood came out from Friday the 13th and Elm Street four was out at that point. And because I was thinking about this and I was 
check out your book was like my favorite nightmare in Elm Street's part four. That's, I mean, I'm not saying it's the best one. It's just my personal favorite. And it was like the same thing happened with Elm Street four and Halloween four, which was Halloween four finally comes out after all these years to hit and people like it. So they rushed the next one. Like they rushed Elm Street five and I did not care for it when it came out and then they rushed halloween five and i was so excited and it was just like when i watched it i was like oh man and so like halloween five seems like i mean do you have anything on what do you think about halloween five and the making of that and the scripts you come across so you know the the biggest find for us with halloween five was i mentioned earlier the the writer's script shim bitterman um who we had never been before (laughs) yeah doesn't roll off my tongue but um (laughs) He had he wrote the original draft of Halloween Five and was still credited on the final movie, even though they Dominic Othenin Girard, the eventual director, this is the script that he dropped into the trash can in front of Mustafa Akkad and said, "We're not using that." And so, almost none of the ideas transferred over. But for anyone that ever watched Halloween Five and said, "Wait a minute, why isn't this about Jamie Lloyd killing people? Why isn't she still evil?" Well, in this original draft that we have a chapter on, she was still killing people. She's she's immediately still killing the first responders that show up to the Carruthers house. I mean, it, it it's it's Halloween five was originally going to be more of the same night, very much like Halloween two. And the other cool thing that happened in the original Halloween five by Shim Bitterman was that Dr. Loomis was out of his mind because he immediately <laughs> says, we got to kill that little girl. Yeah, because that's the only thing I really love about the finished version, but I would love it if they'd pushed it even further. Oh, they did. And it was it was fucked up. Like it was Dr. Loomis um, almost goes past the point of no return. It's but it was it was also kind of cool. Like Dr. Loomis is such a great character. You can do that with him because he believed he was doing the right thing. Yeah, you want him to see go go full Captain Ahab on his white whale. Oh, anyway, man. do you know beyond the director not liking, is there more to the idea of why they didn't go down that path? Because I, I agree, that just sounds, it almost sounds like the ending of four is telling you what part five is, and they just kind of were ignoring that. Mustafa Akkad had kind of, um, you know, he he had pre-sold the, the rights to Halloween 5 to the, the, to the theater exhibitors, and either directly or indirectly, he had somehow gotten a whiff that, no one wanted to see a little girl killing people. They and, are wrong. <laughs> I want to see that. That theater exhibitors weren't going to, you know, put that on their screens. And so he felt the need to have the movie pivot away from Jamie being evil. Because, huh. uh, yeah, that was the ending we all walked away from. Because I saw that in the theater. That was my, the first Halloween I saw in the theaters. And it was it was a blast, you know, and that ending was like, what's going to happen? And you couldn't wait. And then the next year, I don't know, I wasn't really too into that. I wasn't into I, I'm forgiven. Josh showed like a great print of Halloween five at one of his all nighters he does out here. I in did LA. a marathon of only part fives. <laughs> really? Yes. Yeah. And, and that, it played great with a crowd in that context. Yeah, I had I got a lot more respect for it after I watched it that night on the big screen, you know, so now I can kind of be more uh, forgiving of it. But yeah, but that one, it didn't do so well when it came out. It made only 11 million. And plus, they opened it against Look Who's Talking, which kind of <laughs> exact same that. demo. Yeah. <laughs> well, a couple of weeks later, Shocker came out. Yeah, no. And then also 
something I started noticing when I was looking at things is like that same year, Halloween five comes out, Jason takes Manhattan comes out and that's, and Elm street five comes out. And I'm starting to notice is that when the same year that a, a Friday the 13th or an Elm street comes out that a Halloween, they come out earlier or in the summer. And so by the time you get to Halloween five, is it just, Oh, we've already been through these two other franchises and now, you know, we're getting tired. Yeah. You know, it could be that. And then, you know, well, it's so also it, a, a nexus of, um, low quality for all three franchises there i would say yeah it's like the beginning of the end and then now halloween is finally coming out again and the thing that always blew me away about halloween five was or just i was always interested curious about that guy in the opening and then you know now and then you know read through your book your interview with the director of part five is great because he really makes you look at the movie a little bit different, makes you maybe even appreciate it a little bit more, but it also kind of shows how insane it was making that movie. Just like the, the, the guy in the beginning was originally a witch doctor. And that's what makes, this is all from your, I'm everything I'm pretty much going to be saying is from his book. So this is, <laughs> you know, this is from your book. So it's interesting that the Dr. Death guy makes sense because he does this witchcraft to bring Michael Myers back. And that's when, that's when uh, Jamie starts to have those links to Michael Myers is because of the witch doctor. So when they cut out the witch doctor and they just add this hermit guy, um, then it just kind of doesn't make sense. And it's crazy because when I look at the script, Dr. Death is in the script and we go through all these unmade movies. And the craziest thing is that's a crazy opening. They shot it and then they just replaced it anyway. And then the director decides to put that tattoo on Michael Myers arm on set, the thorn mark. Mm -hmm. It's just chaos, that movie. <laughs> it's just and then like and then again, from your book, it's just they just drew the man in black in there just because, oh, we need something for part six. So let's just throw this in and that's not even in the script. It's like madness, that movie. Yeah, that's a big filmmaking sin to create a huge plot element and then force the next set of screenwriters to have to deal with yeah, it. Exactly. No you plan. worry about it. And like you've said, I, I, I also have come to appreciate Halloween 5 more in recent years. It, it works on so many levels not really as a Halloween movie as I would define. Yeah, yeah it's fun, but, but I mean, <laughs> it's got it's got some wonderful qualities. They just aren't ones that I I would personally expect in a Halloween movie. Uh, no, uh, uh, agreed, but that ending, I didn't like the movie when I rented it. I didn't get the ch chance to see that one in the theaters. I rented it, but that ending is the only thing that got me like excited. Like, wait, what just happened? This is weird. You know, they just <laughs> I mean, that's this... why they did it. Yeah. And then <laughs> but it's like, how many years later do we get part six? And I'm, I'm kind of shocked. So, I mean, do you want to take us into part six at all about like, you know, originally it was supposed part six was originally supposed to come out in August 1990. This is from your book. And then they they you know, with the disappointment of part five, they're like, let's think this over a little bit. But then in 91, Freddy's Dead comes out, makes 34 million and, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street's dead for a little bit at this moment. Again, now, now it seems like, you know, that, that it's, it's that the nail in the slasher coffin, you know? <laughs> well, I was also going to ask while you're looking that up, Dustin, I was curious if you have any insight, because I've always thought it was interesting that, uh, you know, you can tell the studios don't care a ton 
about these movies by the fact that they're just slapping them together and forcing them to come out like once mm-hmm. a year. But at the same time, they never went straight to video, which most franchises, once the studio stopped viewing them as like theatrically viable, then it's like, well, let's just ring out this franchise for every last drop. Do you know why Halloween never went the straight to video well, route? Yeah. And it's funny you mentioned that, you know, we also, in addition for Taking Shape 2, we also got some Dimension Films executives to talk to us. And they did make that decision after Halloween 6. Dimension Films officially put Halloween direct to video for Halloween 7. They said it's direct to video. This is no longer a theatrical property. Put it right next to Prophecy and the Crow sequels because Halloween 7 is right to that shelf. And the only thing that saved it was the fact that Jamie Lee Curtis came back. And they were able, because that's another lost sequel, is the original Halloween 7 by Robert Zappia, uh, Two Faces of Evil, it's called. Um, Which, if you've read the chapter on the alternate Halloween 7, it's going to be really, really interesting to compare that to Halloween Ends. And I won't Ah. get into spoilers (laughs) as to why, but these two sequels are swimming in the same pool, I think. You've seen uh, the Halloween Ends? Is that what you're telling us? No. Oh, okay. (laughs) <laughs> well that's uh that's an oh wait sorry but i i interrupted the the halloween but they, did, they so. did make the yeah so to answer your question they did make that call okay and, they, and then they, un unmade it they had a script commissioned and then once jamie lee said she would come back for h2o they said okay well suddenly halloween 7 is, a, is an event again it's a big movie because halloween 6 was disappointing not just for audiences but for the studio i mean they they that was their that was dimension that was their first go at Halloween and they were really high expectations and hopes. And it's production is, was such a shit show. Uh, Just getting the right script was a shit show, but then making the movie and then it did poorly upon release. It was not what they wanted it to be. And so they didn't want another go of that. They were just going to let it be one of those like Hellraiser. And I'm glad it wasn't because that that could have been the. Although, but I mean, it, as much as I'm glad we got Halloween uh, H2O, there is the part of me who was, you know, an avid VHS early days of DVD renter of the most ridiculous movies I could find that knows we would have gotten a like Michael Myers in the hood, Michael Myers in space, just whatever nonsense they were tossing out there. Uh, right. Part of me would have enjoyed seeing that. Uh, but but let's loop loop back. You were looking up something to say oh, about well, uh, part six. Part six is so crazy because, um, you know, they originally wanted Quentin Tarantino to take it. Quentin Tarantino had just had this huge success with Pulp Fiction. You know, that exploded and he's so popular. And they were like, hey, we've got to attach Quentin to this project. Let's offer it to him to write and direct. And he said, well, I don't want to write it, but I might direct it. Or maybe it was the opposite. He handpicked. Uh, a director in Scott Spiegel, you know, of uh, oh, yeah. Dead 2 fame. And Intruder. Uh, Scott <laughs> took a look at the, we interviewed Scott for the book. He took a look at the screenplay they were considering and said, you can't save it. There's no, they, there's no <laughs> rewrite that can save it because he said no. And Mustafa Akkad said, would you consider rewriting the screenplay to make it to your liking? And Steve, Scott Spiegel said, there's no amount of rewrites that I can do to fix what's wrong here, which there was a lot wrong with the two earlier. They were called Halloween 666, which 
Well, it's a cool title. The <laughs> ideas they had were pretty wonky. Well, it's infamous because this was what I heard about a while ago, which was the VR Halloween. Yeah. And so that's what I've always been interested in it. You know, I've had the script for years. I've just never broke into it. And I've been dying to for one of these episodes to break into it. But yeah, the VR, you know, like uh, Michael Douglas's disclosure of Halloween movies. You know, <laughs> yeah, so uh, that was not something that that's from Phil Rosenberg's uh, screenplay of Halloween 666. And it's not something he wanted to put in the movie. Bob Weinstein, who was over Dimension, um, had just, I think, I think he had seen Lawnmower Man come out and make a big splash, and he gave the mandate that Halloween 666 needed to have virtual reality in it. And Phil Rosenberg knew nothing about virtual reality. Who, who did in the mid-90s? The makers of Lawnmower Man didn't, well, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> the way it's used in the script that you're talking about, because you can find the script online, is it's, it's used as like a time, a time machine? In a weird way, I mean, it's completely nonsensical, even for like movie virtual reality, and uh, it it it's it's terrible. The next version of Halloween six six six, you know, it got a rewrite by another by a pair of screenwriters, and that one got so far along that it had a director in Matthew Patrick. They were up in Seattle, uh, had a production office. They were scouting locations, and. Um, it got shut down just a couple of weeks before they were going to go before cameras, um, which is both wild and disappointing. Yeah. Do you know why it was shut down? Um, you know, there were some some reports that said it was due to the quality of uh, of the script. They weren't happy with it, that the, the Weinsteins were forcing ahead with a script that hadn't been approved by the ACADs. But then also there were rumors of financial troubles. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. You know, Matthew Patrick, the the director who was going to direct it we we got a hold of him for the book and and he he was very disappointed and what's so surprising to me with all these lost sequels was i wasn't expecting that any of the writers and directors would want to talk about it i thought it might be like a painful subject and they would just be like why would i discuss something that didn't happen almost everyone was really happy to talk about it and talk about you know because they've never some of them have never even been announced and so no one knows they even took a crack at it they were able to share their visions and matthew patrick was um, one of those filmmakers. Yeah, I, I love that. I had no idea that act that existed was they got that close to shooting the movie and it got, you know, pulled. And like and he directed Hider in the House with Gary Busey. Oh, and that's uh, a fun one. Yeah. And it, it's shocking, too, that it's like five years since Halloween five when it comes out that they were going to still stick to that storyline of, you know, of part five, continuing it over, which kind of, when I saw that in the theaters, I remember I dragged my roommate opening day. He was so <laughs> mad at me because he was just like, what is this? You know, <laughs> you know, here's, I mean, I mean, what do you got? Are you, are you both, do you prefer the producer's cut or the, or, or the theatrical cut of that? Well, my thing is, is that I don't really like either of them, I guess is the, the truest answer. I'll admit that the producer's cut if you care about the storyline established in four and five is maybe a better movie feeding into the mythology. The thing that I think is better about the theatrical cut is that they were doing the reshoots and whatever had happened in Paul Rudd's life, getting cast in clueless or what he's like, I'm going to be funny now in the reshoots. <laughs> and that was kind of what my friends and I liked about it. We didn't know who Paul Rudd was, but we were kind of like, 
ah, this guy, this guy's interesting (laughs) and was not surprised, you know, then when he quickly blew up to be a legit star. So then when I watched the producer's cut, when Scream Factor released their awesome, you know, Halloween cube, as I call it, uh, I was I was kind of shocked to see like, oh, his performance is so like theater class, like dead serious in the producer's cut. How do you feel, Dustin? Well, I mean, I, I would I prefer the producer's cut simply because it has more Dr. Loomis and Dr. Yeah. Wynn, whom I liked. You know, Halloween 6 tries to continue the mythology of the previous two movies, but it never really commits to it in a serious way or satisfying way. My biggest problem with both versions of Halloween 6, and I, I really regret this about the movie, is that we never get Michael and Loomis face to face. It's their final mm-hmm. confrontation, and there's no confrontation. I mean, even in the producer's cut, when he finally goes to unmask Michael, it's it's win. And I just felt that Dr. Loomis deserved a better send-off than that. Yeah. And of course, they had no idea that they had no idea that Donald Pleasance was going to pass away, but I hate that that was his his exit. No, that's a good point. I didn't even think of that. Well, uh, and they get why am I I'm brain farting her name? And I'm yeah, I think she turned them down is why she wasn't there. But it would have been great if uh they'd gotten Daniel what's her Harris. face? Yes, Harris back. Uh, to reprise her role. Although I think it was also just that she kind of unceremoniously gets done away with. Yeah, not, not, yeah, that, that was kind of disappointing about it. I mean, was Urban Legends already out at that point? Because I remember, no, 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 later that comes out because I remember seeing her and that and was happy. Yeah. But I, I actually prefer the, the theatrical cut. Um, but um, Is it because of funny Paul Red. I why? like because <laughs> you, again, not to keep giving, your all-nighters props but you played a, a great 35 millimeter of the producer's cut and i, just, I also did an all six a thon oh say. nice i didn't see that but i no, remember what it was from oh yeah the all six. Oh yeah that was yeah. a great one yeah that was a good one uh because what i liked what i found myself i missed like the guy's head exploding i like all the extra madness that movie adds in the in the theatrical cut personally i don't know i just like uh I'm a, I'm a fan of that one more than the producer's cut. But um, I didn't realize, too, when they released that movie, uh, it came out like it like seven was just released the week before. And so I don't think it you know, I think people are like, I'd rather just go see this new mm-hmm. disturbing serial killer movie than go see wow, the week this before. That's, you know, sometimes in the past. Where, I don't know why those movies don't feel like they coexisted in the same month. No. In my mind, Halloween yeah. six feels older to me than seven does. Halloween yeah. six, you know, I give it everything is so wonderful about Halloween six, except the story and the script, like the cast are wonderful. The mm-hmm. atmosphere, the locations are great. The cinematography and the music, the mask. I mean, the kills. I love so much about Halloween six, except the absolute alphabet soup of a script that was <laughs> Frankenstein together. And I, I also say that with no blame to Daniel Ferens because that guy's a good sport. Like to have his work ruined by other people, he's really a good sport to still be a a champion of the franchise like he is. I would have loved to have seen his true vision realized because I think it would have been a way better movie than what we got. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, as as I always like to point out on the show, as a screenwriter, uh, you often can't really even blame the name you're seeing on the screen or even on the script. Um, because usually writers don't just get to do whatever they want to do. Um, some of these scripts, though, I do feel like 
uh, like the <laughs> the rock star pants, Michael Myers. You do kind of <laughs> get the impression though that they just went off and wrote a movie and came back, yeah. and the powers that be were like, um, uh, thanks. And then kind of just shoved it in a drawer because I, right. I, I have a hard time imagining that they approved rock star outfit Michael Myers. But I guess who knows what was in their mind at that point in time. No, I mean, they were just desperate to get something out there, I guess, at that time. But what's yeah, interesting to me is that Mustafa Akkad, um, I don't know. he The Akkads have played such interesting and important role, I think, in guiding the series forward. Circa Halloween 4, just before Halloween 4, I don't know that Mustafa, and I'm guessing here because I wasn't there, but I don't know that he necessarily knew what the franchise should be so much as that he knew what it shouldn't be. And he was able to step up and to John Carpenter and say, it shouldn't be 12 foot tall Michael Myers. That's not. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and I, it's curious as to had Jamie Lee Curtis agreed to return, it's curious which elements from that rock star Halloween 4, which ones Mustafa would have been like, this is okay. This is not, uh, if any of it, you know, I mean, would he have not been okay with 12 foot tall ghost, Michael Myers, but Michael Myers driving a sports car with leather pants is cool. We don't know what the line was. Wait, because what was, year were they writing that? Was that, that script was, from? That was, was so what, what year was that script from the rock star? 87. Okay. I wonder if it was the, cause I guess you can sort of see the Terminator connection now that i'm thinking about it the idea of the terminator beating up the punks and then for the rest of the i mean schwarzenegger looks pretty good in it but you know having that weird outfit for him i wonder if they were maybe thinking some of that no it was like, who knows yeah and it was no it was the, the the period of like hair metal it was the hair metal was big at that point too like the you know poison and white snake and yeah, it's so, just hard to imagine finding yeah you know, the lead singer of Poison <laughs> stalking after you that intimidating, but right. Yeah, I hear you. Um, no yeah, then, offense to all the Brett Michaels fans out there. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, yeah, and as he was saying, yeah, we, after Disappointment of Part 6, it almost went straight to video, which I found fascinating in your in your book. And then you brought up the two faces of evil. When I was reading and to go back to your other book, Slash of the Titans, I thought that Two Faces of Evil, the opening has like a copycat killer. And I thought that it brought me back to one of your Jason versus Freddy. And by the way, during this time period in the 90s, they're trying to get a Jason's versus Freddy movie started mm -hmm. at the same time as we're discussing this. And there was a G Jason versus Freddy script that started off also where you think it's Freddy, but it's an imitator, you know? doing the and I thought that was kind of interesting that Halloween and a Jason versus Freddy script around the same time were going for like the same thing too yeah, that's it's almost like there was something in the subconscious uh, what what would we say zeitgeist I guess not subconscious that the imitation was the imitation slasher was an angle that hadn't really been tapped yet right I mean they've mm -hmm. done they've done slashers in space Eventually, and they did slashers, you know, take them out of Haddonfield, take them out of Crystal Lake. Um, but they, you know, haven't really done the copycat killer. And mm -hmm. so I, it, it's it's probably a trope you could do with with any of the big bads. But, you know, how well, how much mileage you get from it, you know, depends on how you do it, I suppose. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it would have been like, you know, the Friday at 13th one where we were all disappointed at the ending. I mean, I kind of, again, now when you go back, I don't mind it, but, but I mean, yeah, but anyway, I guess like Halloween, I mean, now we're up to Halloween seven, which is going to turn into H2O. Oh, and, but you know, I'm sorry. Let me jump before we go yeah, forward. The difference though, with, with Friday the 13th part five, a new beginning, you know, that was, that was Roy the whole time. I mean, that was the mm-hmm. imposter Jason, the whole movie. The great thing about two faces of evil I think if they were to have made that one is that we would never be sure was this Michael in this scene or was this the imposter and that kind of uh, cat and mouse thing where they're both occupying the same killing grounds at the same time uh, and even becoming a victim at the end. I, I think that would have been a, an interesting twist on the imposter sim imposter trope. You know, as whereas Friday the 13th, part five, we didn't have Jason in most of that movie. In Two Faces of Evil, we would have had Michael Myers. We just, it would have been a game to figure out when we were really seeing him. So that would have been the difference. I wanted to bring that up. Yeah. And there is a cool ending you brought up to that version also at the ending, like a good switcheroo, which I, which I enjoyed reading. Um, so yeah, but then you were saying, you know, and then eventually they were, they had to throw everything out because Jamie Lee Curtis became interested in being in because the 20 year anniversary was coming up. So, it so Jamie Lee Curtis was interested in being in the movie. Then Scream came out and was such a big success. And so they wanted Kevin Williamson to come in and help out. Um, anything else to lead us into H2O for you or no, that that's, that's it. Man, and um, yeah, and H2O was a huge hit. And that was the one you saw in the theater for the first time, you were saying. Yeah, as a as a young teenage boy, that was that was like a spiritual experience getting to see the shape up on the big screen. I mean, and that was a that was a big Halloween movie. I mean, like Jamie Lee Curtis was on all the talk shows, it was on the cover of Entertainment Weekly, it had its own sci-fi channel making of special. Like that was cool. Like even the even the music video uh Creed did for the movie was on MTV. Oh you were seeing Michael on MTV. I mean, it was great. No, it was, it, it was, it, it came out the perfect time, you know, and it, it really revised it because we all loved scream. And it was just like, it was like, you know, it was like the slasher movie came back because just before, you know, cause people don't realize when Halloween yeah six came out, it was like the slasher movies were kind of dead. Like the, the new nightmare just kind of came out and was all right. And then, Jason went to hell already. It was just like, it felt like slasher movies were done. And then it, like H2O came out like at the perfect time. We're going to hit pause right here and pick things up in part two of our conversation about unmade Halloween movies with author Dustin McNeil. If you'd like to hear even more details about the films we've been talking about, you should check out Dustin's book, Taking Shape 2. If you'd like more details on just unmade movies in general, you should follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at NeverMadeFilm and Instagram at BestMoviesNeverMade. You should also check out the Electric Now app to watch a video of our podcasts and all the podcasts on the Electric Surge Network. We'd like to thank Bill Ritter and our producers Mark A. Altman and Dean Devlin. Until next time, this is Josh Miller and Steven Scarlatta saying, we won't see you at the movies.
This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.